0: suggested he said you know you guys should in the you guys should category of podcast feedback that we are now getting he said you guys really should do that thing that every podcast that i listen to does i said what's that be good be heard widely he said no 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 not that he said every podcast i listen to at the top it asks people to subscribe oh mm-hmm. and i was sort of like yeah but i mean if they're listening. I guess this is where you get into the difference between like a subscriber and a spot downloader. Right. So for you, dog, all you listeners out there, be you subscribers or not, please subscribe. Wherever you get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, any others Uh, that I can- The (laughs) podcast store. The podcast store. (laughs) You know, down on 8th on eighth. Phil Rizzuto Rizzuto is the (laughs) podcast store. (laughs) Well, we're just doing a quick bonus pod here because yesterday... Yeah, welcome
1: to full cast and crew. Yeah, everyone That's knows the, that. Don't they we have to do that the, too?
0: It's full cast and crew.
1: This is our second bonus episode. It's the second bonus episode. And it's our in memoriam episode for the passing of Stan Lee. Correct. Uh, one of the, the popularizer and of Marvel Comics and one of the co-creators of some of the most influential and currently profitable uh characters in entertainment history.
0: You, you are of and from the comic book world in a way yeah. that I'm not. So I thought I would just sort of conduct this almost like a little bit of an interview with you about Stanley and about your own experience in comic books, because you do have a background. I'll give a little brief summary of some of your bona fides. You've written for Marvel. Yes. You wrote a series of issues across their Nightcrawler uh, what do you call it? A night, a Nightcrawler? It was a
1: limited series starring the X-Men character Nightcrawler.
0: Okay. And you had, I think, four
1: episodes? Four issues. Four yeah, issues. Four issue limited Sorry. series.
0: So it's an issue, not an episode when right. it's a comic book. Got it. I'm starting to learn all these different media terms. Um, and you also, Chris, wrote a Marvel Adventures Spider-Man series.
1: Yes. Five single issues. Four of them were collected together in one bound collection i also did one short story that was in an anthology comic called amazing fantasy okay funny enough where actually spider-man first appeared i was just reading that i did an eight page story that was like a backup okay uh, in that
0: were you a marvel contract writer were you employed by marvel or is this like a submission
1: all my life it's been something comic books and superheroes have just been something that i've always mm-hmm. loved and um so grew up reading them grew up fantasizing about uh making them mm-hmm. uh I went more into theater and acting. I always wanted to, as a playwright, bring a lot of genre sensibility and superhero mm-hmm. and comic book stuff to the plays that I did. At one point when I moved to New York, I had written some plays, uh, a sort of trio of one acts that were meant to be performed together. And uh, I basically invited every editor I could find the name of from both DC and Marvel. Hmm. One of them responded, and he, the guy named Mark Powers, who at the time was the-
0: And you edit- didn't know him? I didn't
1: know him, No. You just uh, said,
0: "Hey, I'm a huge fan," and basically, yeah, it's
1: like, "Look, I'm a writer and I'm appearing and an
0: actor. in a, a play that I wrote," and a guy actually showed up, yeah. in response to an email request to say, <laughs> "Email a <This> letter." It <laughs> was a letter. Is,
1: this was hard. This is a hard wow. copy. Uh, Speaking you know, as someone who goes to a
0: lot of theater, Chris, that's one of the most generous things I've ever heard. Yeah, to go to some show that you have no idea what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, not to. Uh, because I agree with you, and the guy <laughs> will, uh, you know, forever in my mind be exalted for having mm-hmm. given me the my first chance. Uh, on the other hand, like I said, I I did say like, look, I'd like to write for comics. Here's something that's a little bit different than the submissions you probably get. You know, and it was your play. It, well, I didn't send the play, but it was like you can come see this as opposed okay. to reading it. Out of the f- twenty five, fifty, however many that I sent, only one responded. Mark Powers did end up coming to the show, and he stayed afterwards. And he said, i um, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm so glad." And the thing that I remember he said is, uh, you, you, "You seem to be a very talented writer. I don't know why you want to work in a third-rate medium, but uh, <laughs> if you're interested, you know, give me a call next week or whatever. Let's, you know, come on in." So I think about a week later, I did go into the offices. Wow! Which into, the again, offices into the Marvel offices in New York offices City offices at the time was uh, uh, must have think, been amazing. Chris. Yeah, it was incredibly exciting. Did you fanboy out? I. Well, I tried to keep my cool, but around that's that time, Joe Quesada, like you said, had been appointed the editor in chief right. of Marvel. He was trying to reinvigorate things, and there were uh, already announces of big time for new teams. voices. Well, and I think that's probably why um, Mark w- brought me in, or you know, sort of mm-hmm. accepted the invitation.
0: So it it actually must be probably hard, quote unquote, to find people like yourself who sort of have a have a. Ground level up awareness of the canon, if you will, and have the wherewithal to actually contribute storylines that can work. Like That's probably hard to find. I'm sure probably there's a million people who think they can do it and want to do it, but it's probably very hard to actually do it.
1: Right now, it's a a different world and a lot more people. A a whole other generation grew up with comic books being that much more present. It's easier to find people that were sort of reading them sort Mm -hmm. of religiously. There's also been a technological democratization both of finding comics as well as to create comics. You get a lot of people who are making their own web comics and making stuff, and so they just get practice yeah. Uh, in a way that in in the late 90s, to make a comic book, you had to do it physically. It involved sort of a lot of cutting and pasting and, and physical work to get out. You know, it's like creating an independent film sure. was very different in the 70s than it was in the 80s and the 90s. As it, it became easier, you get more people doing it, more people practicing and sort of getting better. And I think that's happened with comic books uh, as well.
0: So when you go into Marvel, do, do they... Do you pitch them the storyline that becomes your Nightcrawler series of issues or do they give you a
1: storyline? I'm sure with everybody it's a, it's a little bit different, you know. In this case, you know, he had seen my work and was yep. interested in talking. I went it never crossed my mind to hope that I would be offered a job by going in. Right. Uh, to me it was sort of like an initial audition for right. a theater or something, right. uh, just a meeting to say yeah. hello. He knew I was, inter- you know, interested enough to sort of come in, and I think, you know, he wanted to make sure that I would show up. Sure, you know, all of those those yeah. things that go into a sort of hiring practice. So I was called in for that. Had a real nice meeting with Mark. Uh, I will admit, I at the time I wasn't a huge X Men guy mm-hmm. because in the '90s the X Men were the hugest thing, and mm-hmm. if there's one thing. About my personality, you're a contrarian. <laughs> you're going to go popular, the other way. I'm going to go the other way. Funny, yeah. I'm not so, like that at all. Uh, so <laughs> well, you might have some. But you don't tell uh, yourself. I don't right. think so. You know, and he asked, like, would you be interested in what do you think of Nightcrawler? And it was amazing. To so, really like, then you
0: just show up and go to work there every day?
1: Well, no. It's it was or a, freelance, it's a freelance freelance from gig. home. Yeah. Uh, submit me some ideas for a 4SU limited series. So I think I said two or three. And at
0: that point, had there been any standalone Nightcrawler comics within the X-Men universe? there had been one that Chris Claremont had written. In Did you have the freedom to... I mean, the backstory of the character was already completely yeah. solidified, or you had freedom to come up with whatever you wanted to? Oh, yeah. You, you know,
1: to. the thing is, this is a spinoff from, of a character from uh, the most successful of their lines at the time. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about the X-Men at the time was that it, there was something so operatic about them. So they all had... Really intricate, Mm -hmm. long backstories. Right, and the thing about comics, uh, one of the things about comics, and especially Marvel and DC, these sort of Mm universe-based comics, you have these long stories that everybody is adding to every time they Mm -hmm. write or draw a story, and this legend is getting bigger. And you know, when I talk about the canon, it's it's an attempt to reconcile all those things Mm -hmm. into some kind of coherent story. As that story has gotten longer. Things fall away, things mm-hmm. get rebooted, things get changed. We're at a time right now when actually I think the idea of the continuity in the canon is just less popular. People like sort of riffing on the characters as sort of memes.
0: Well, is it less popular to do that or is it just we've reached the point where there's no fealty to the essence of certain characters because we just need to make more content with familiar characters?
1: I think it's it's cyclical because I think there have also mm-hmm. been times where the, the history of comics – has you know some sort of distinct periods and they would be demarcated by a different kind of storytelling or way of Mm -hmm. looking at the characters so for example the silver age which presaged Mm -hmm. um stan lee's uh great innovations Mm -hmm. was started by dc when Mm -hmm. they took they had this golden age character the flash and somebody decided like "Ah, hey we have this old property and you know right now it's like a reboot Mm -hmm. but they took just pretty much the name the idea of the power Gave it a new '60s-ish costume, updated the powers, the story, the origin, and and um, did it new, and it was the new Flash, mm-hmm. uh, and quickly followed by the new Green Lantern. You know, again, this the same sort of thing, right? For a different time, they sort of closed the book on that that old continuity and created a new character within that. And there are times when the long extended story element of it does become more popular. I think in the mm-hmm. 80s and into the 90s, that was true. Stan Lee's innovation when he created mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four, one of the things about it was these were people that had other sure. lives outside of their uh, right. superheroics and adventures.
0: After that, did you ever in your lifetime growing up think, my God, one day I'm going to write some Spider-Man comics? I mean, you're, this is, you're directly touching and involved in the legacy of Stan Lee. It's fucking Spider-Man. Yeah,
1: going into the offices like that to me was already <laughs> a dream. Everything after that sure becomes sort of gravy. So too with working on uh, on the Spider-Man book, they could have asked me to do you know uh, sure Razorback. Is backup. that a real thing? Yeah, he was some who was like a truck driver who got super strength mm-hmm. and wears like a boar's head. Really, yeah. that
0: sounds like a terrible character. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you like truckers, especially with a it was a Marvel Adventures sort of Spider-Man stories that are not considered part of the lore and the canon, per exactly. se?
1: I have a tendency to sometimes take things a little bit too seriously. No. A little, you probably wouldn't guess I'm by, by listening to this podcast. Uh, but I'll <laughs> tell you, writing Spider-Man specifically for this sort of all-ages thing and these one-and-done stories, you know, helped me sort of get over that.
0: How um, did you not get a Spider-Man tattoo? Gosh. Uh, Seems like you'd want to commemorate the experience
1: well i figured the issues itself myself, do you, do you have copies do you have multiple
0: copies of the issues at in your yeah, home yeah like, i mean
1: i yeah i've given a lot of them away but mm-hmm. yeah. you never
0: gave me one mm-hmm. so i'm just saying Sorry. you just save me a few dollars going Still. on uh <laughs> well, amazon later christmas is coming first of all where do you place stan lee as a figure in the history of
1: comics there um and
0: please keep the answer as brief as possible well
1: i wish you told me that before if i start uh,
0: looking at you like this yeah. That means you can wrap it up. I'm going to ask you the next question. Okay. That's a podcasting uh, trick.
1: It is. It is very difficult to overstate just how important. Is he
0: the most important figure in the history of comics? That
1: That's a really tough one to answer. Let me digress a little bit only to say.
0: <laughs> Chris's know, forthcoming podcast is called. Let me digress a little bit.
1: <laughs> about probably about a decade. I can't remember if it was Will Eisner or Jack Kirby, who are mm-hmm. two other big, big names and, yeah. uh, Whichever of them died first, I remember hearing that that they had died, and being very conscious of like, oh my gosh, this medium is still sort of so young that somebody who is that important sure. in shaping it was still alive right. until just now. Right. Now they're starting to starting to die off, yeah. and a lot Did of go. huge name. There's yeah. a generation they're starting to go. Stan was sort of the holdout, and when you ask, you know, how important is he in the in the field of comics? You know, he was not an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, artist he wasn't himself, an author, really, because he, very young, became the editor of of it. And comics were were happening. There were superhero. Mm-hmm. There were all sorts of genres that were up and out there. And he wanted to write, but he still never felt that he was kind of doing his best work. And he was on the verge of leaving the company and leaving the mm-hmm. industry because he was kind of unhappy filling the right what at the time what, what were the, the time popular was, things. Yeah. and his wife. Uh, famously gave him the advice, was just like, you know, what if you're leaving anyway, go do out what and you bang, want. do what you want to do. And he created the Fantastic Four. Uh, it was very similar to some other books, and that it was an adventure book. I was just reading, and I think this is right that it was very closely a kind of knockoff mm-hmm. of the Challengers of the Unknown, which Jack Kirby had created over at DC but the thing about it was his scripts and his they had w- conflicts they had agita together well, I would they say had- that, that they had agita more than you know yeah. That, yeah that there was something sort of yeah. realistic about them You know, it's hard to say realistic talking about them now because there's something corny about it—the pomposity, the grandeur, and the sort of Wagnerian drama of these people with superpowers Mm -hmm. and and the the grandness and scale. He would undercut that somewhat with sort of wisecracks and the fact that people would get sick or have a girlfriend problem or people being married and having marital squabbles, bringing that sort of element of. Life and, and the Fantastic Four, you know, they were a family. Mm-hmm. And so that was both a family book and an adventure book. And adding those two things together changed that the world. He took it one step further with Spider-Man. A teenager. But he was a teenager yeah. on top of having a problems. Sure. Those were specific teenage problems. He yeah. had money problems. He had family he, problems. He had family problems. He had all of these. Well, he was probably just doing what he liked. Yeah. Right. I so, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the innovation.
0: The innovation is like his wife said, you know, it's a famous adage in the television business, too, is if you're a network executive, they're going to fire you anyway. So you <laughs> might as well do what you want to do. The yeah, good the good ones really do good, operate. That's by a good that.
1: point. In fact, actually, there's a great. So Steve Ditko, who was his sure. collaborator on the creation of Spider-Man, uh, there was a documentary about him a couple years ago. And there's a famous spoiler for 1965 Spider-Man when it was revealed <laughs> who the Green Goblin was. There was a conflict between Stan Mm -hmm. and Steve Ditko, and Steve Ditko was very famously sort of conservative Mm -hmm. and actually an an objectivist. Ayn Rand. Uh, The question was, when he pulls off the mask of the Green Goblin, who's it going to be? And Steve Ditko was like, it doesn't make sense. We're in a city of however many millions of people. Mm -hmm. What are the odds he's going to know? who? No, it's going to be some (laughs) person he has no idea anything about. And he is absolutely right that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But Stan was like, no, it's going to be his best friend's father. He's going to have that friggin' Because <laughs> it's a soap opera. Because of it's a soap of, opera. And, it, and the elements of realism are good as far as they go, but not when they undercut drama. And this story was being relayed by Neil Gaiman in this mm-hmm. uh, Steve Ditko documentary. And he was saying that as, Steve Ditko was certainly right logically, but as a storyteller... When you guys talk about this stuff, and pretty universally it's
0: guys talking about this stuff in this world, I know we're in a moment where there's a lot of new creators, and yes, I, I hear that. But what I'm talking about is really in the era that we're talking about, mm-hmm. it's a really male-dominated field, white male-dominated field, probably more to the point in the 60s, 70s,
1: 80s, but through the know, 90s. But certainly prior to that, and I mentioned is you know whiteness, if that included Jews. Sure. Because that, that's yeah. another thing that's very important about the comic books and superheroes yeah. is that the feeling of otherness yes. that Jews had Well, in our the colleague,
0: States. Ari Kaplan, has written extensively about Superman and Judaism and mm-hmm. how that's a part of the story there. Why does the conversation about comic books assume a literary proportion at times? I mean, yeah, I get it. The innovation is he rips the mask off and it's his best friend's father. That's a soap opera moment. That's a that's a that's a yeah. a potboiler moment. It's not high literature. And it's okay. It doesn't have to be, right? But the pretentiousness that sometimes goes with the discussion of the comic book world is what I find a little off-putting at times. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm reacting to is where this stuff exists now in popular culture, where there's a lot of ink spilled, no pun intended, on superhero movies less so on the books themselves Mm -hmm. really which is kind of a weird i was just looking up some of the numbers recently because i was curious what the comic book sales have been uh over the last five years or so that we've lived in this marvel universe moment where these movies make billions and billions of dollars stan lee when you look at interviews with him he strikes me the thing that you just mentioned is such a good anecdote because he's so unpretentious yeah the mass of the the conflict that were that universes are in the balance, and it's not that that stuff went away per se, but he kind of pushed things to a more human scale, don't you think? Pushed it to a human scale, yes. That's it why the Marvel stuff's probably better than the DC stuff
1: has been because the DC stuff has that portentousness I mean, it goes, to it. It goes right? back and forth. Yeah, I think everything is always best when it's reacting to what came before right. it and sort of doing the opposite. And you know, I will take a little bit of issue with what you talk about. Any kind of cultural criticism, any kind of literary analysis. Mm-hmm. Always verges on pretension. And certainly when you're talking about a piece of what's the great thing about it is that it is mm-hmm. it is supposed to be sort of a disposable piece of culture. Sure. Pretension, when you love a thing the way I do, the way a lot of people do love comics, I guess you can't help but invest it in a certain kind of importance. But I think all art is that effectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know the Mona Lisa, as wonderful as it is, it is still just sort of splashes of pigment mm-hmm. on on a canvas, and it's what people see in it, and the love that they bring to it that, that imbue it with a with a certain power. So the pretension around who painted that again?
0: Stuff, da Vinci.
1: I think it was either him or his brother.
0: Was it Leonardo da Vinci that did the Mona Lisa? It wasn't. Okay. So no, I wasn't. I was asking a serious question. <laughs> oh,
1: sorry. <laughs> see,
0: um, see how you love to condescend.
1: I, I no, I. Not, Th- everyone knows. To improv. not
0: everyone knows Da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa.
1: That's as close to an everybody knows thing as, <laughs> as
0: a... Do you think that's the most famous painting in the world? Yeah. Not even, not even close.
1: I mean, there, I'm sure like a couple of like Pietas, a couple of like Jesus Who? on the Crosses thing. Who? Pieta. Like a Pieta?
0: The Pieta? P-I-E-T-A,
1: p-a- like a picture of Jesus being held by Mary after having been uh, nailed up on is the cross. Is that console. an artist's name, Pieta? No, it's a like a tradition of um, oh. like kinds of huh. sculptures and pictures. Well,
0: you comic book guys know a lot
1: about a lot of stuff.
0: All <laughs> right, let me ask you another question, Chris. Um, why do comics, and this is going to get written about a lot in the upcoming days and weeks, as it always has been with Stanley. probably overblown the issue of creative credit and who did what because of... What you mentioned earlier, which is in the days in which Stan Lee was coming of age as an editor and running Marvel, the process of physically making comic books was so much more involved than any one person could accomplish in a room by themselves. Yeah. So you obviously needed.
1: And it was a low margin business. It was a low margin business. You have to turn a lot business. of uh, titles you, you, around. You have to
0: turn a lot of titles around. So it's not, it's not, you know, it's a world where you need a bunch of guys doing penciling, a bunch of guys doing inking, you need writers, you need printing presses you need all this stuff so obviously you're gonna you you because it's a the output is a creative effort that's collectively produced in a way yeah um but we don't have these same types of issues when we talk about films for example but it seems like in comic books for some reason and i mean it's not as if any of these things occurs and everyone knows stanley knows exactly what he has or uh, Kirby or Ditko know exactly what they have or exactly what they're contributing, it's that this character strikes a chord for for the alchemical reason that we can't really define. Mm-hmm. We can pick it apart and we can say, it's because he's a uh, tortured teenage boy who has tortured teenage boy problems and a difficult family life, and that allows the very tortured teenage boys reading the book to plug into this character and care for him in a way that they may not have cared for other superhero characters who don't feel a part of their everyday life, whatever. I'm not, you don't have to, mm-hmm. Chris is shaking. He said like, well, I could split what. that. <laughs> it's just an analogy, Chris. Um, but this issue of credit has always dogged Stan Lee and he's given a lot of different answers to it. Yeah. And in later years, he certainly went out of his way to give credit to people like uh, Kirby and Ditko yeah. for their contributions. Is there something inherently flawed in the way the comic book industry was set up where these issues are allowed to come to fruition? Or is it just simply what happens in success?
1: I guess it's a little bit of both. It was certainly... Um, I think it all goes back to the nature of the kind of medium that it was and the kind of characters that were being created for it that nobody sort of realized that there would be this kind of potential for the characters being in other media. Maybe they might have dreamed it, dreamed mm-hmm. it but they, they just thought, like, here's just another story for mm-hmm. this magazine that somebody will read maybe give to somebody else who will then throw it away. Mm-hmm. And you know this is why I mentioned before like you Stan Lee was turning around a lot of books and I think this mm-hmm. went for all the publishers at the time. You know I read a lot of history of, mm-hmm. of comic book stuff. And you know when a thing when a thing gets popular within minutes a whole <laughs> yeah. other publishing company is up or another title is coming out sure. to try to jump on of course. and do the same kind of thing. And the speed mm-hmm. of all of that stuff means, you know, that you just have to get it out there, and you have to divide up the labor in, in kind but of. But then all of a sudden, you're ways. the guy who goes, "Wait a minute! I'm
0: the one who came up with the idea for shooting the webs from the wrist this yeah. way. Yeah, I never got and credit it's only for that. after
1: after the fact because it, you know yeah. at the time it's just like I, I don't know what do we uh, just do this or you know yeah. uh, so I think that was one of, that's something that's inherent to the comic book mm-hmm. form that I think is different than film, for example. Right. Even at its earliest days, it took so much effort and mm-hmm. money and technical stuff.
0: Directors in that early time frame were existing outside a construct of an auteur theory. Not to get bogged down in pedantic film discussion, but 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 when you had the auteur theory kind of emerge, whenever that emerged in the 50s or the 60s in cinema, that's the idea that one person is in charge of everything that we're seeing, which is a fallacy. It's a fallacy in film. Um, It's really demonstrably a fallacy in almost every creative medium except the the very individual mediums like painting, but even you have people like Jeff Koons who employ... Acres and acres of assistance to produce artwork that has his name affixed to it, and that's yeah. part of what you're buying but it's into. His
1: concept is it like in some ways? I wouldn't say that the auteur theory is is a fallacy. It's no, not important. at all. But I'm saying it's we're
0: retroactively trying to put it on
1: something oh, like I Spider-Man in yeah.
0: these comic books and saying like, yeah. hey, this had to come from one person because as humans we want to assign and take credit. Yeah. Listen, there's so much money involved. People need to know who is responsible on a contractual level.
1: Well, not only is there money, but there's also, like you said, pride. DC Comics has a stream, streaming service that they just mm-hmm. started a couple, I guess, last month. That was your idea? And they have they not- They did not credit you. Not only did they not cast me as Robin. You were sitting around
0: one night in, in your apartment, filled floor to ceiling with back issues of innumerable comic books. And you said, you know what would be great? If DC Comics did a streaming service, yeah. then I could just watch all my favorite DC characters. And I p- I typed that. You typed that into Google. and, and I, You uh, put in a letter. You put a stamp on it. You walked all you the way it. down to the old post office. Yeah, stopped at Forbidden Planet on the way. Sure, then stopped t- and had a black cup of coffee and
1: a— The first uh, uh, piece of content that was created for the streaming service was this Teen Titans TV show. Yeah. And, you know, people on Twitter were talking about, like, wow, they didn't credit Wolfman and Perez. They didn't have a created by mm-hmm. credit. I, don't, I have no idea if Marv Wolfman and George Perez have a problem with this or what this sort mm-hmm. of thing is. But based but it does on not characters say, created by Yeah, it's that created right. by thing.
0: But people on Twitter Pride were or, aghast.
1: But people were aghast, yeah. Oh, well that's and, what
0: they do on Twitter. Okay, so I think that's the work the work for higher nature of a lot of these guys. I read a little anecdote
1: about uh, I think it was. I mean, was, there's also a lot of stuff that was genuinely work for hire. One of course, been codified right. more, and people would then come out after the fact. Right.
0: So, why do you think Stan's status
1: remained so exalted? Why was he the one guy? Is it because he was a showman? His innovation in writing was to add these kind of complicate these human mm-hmm. complications, and I think it's sort of appropriate that his own legacy is not without his own complications. Right. That uh, this element of credit, which he certainly got better about later mm-hmm. in life, but was. You know, he told enough sure. different stories that you sort of realize that there's a feat right. of play. But what you can't deny and the thing about his showmanship had as much to do with the fact that he loved doing tell it his, and ca- telling, telling a story, a story yeah. and and dealing with people and sure. creating the fandom around these characters and trying new sure. things. You know, that is his legacy, because I mean, the great thing about comics and the great things about the great thing about, I think, Stan's work was to bring these things kind of closer together that the, the cosmic and the crazy Mm -hmm. and the mythic and all of that stuff can can, also live with the messy and the human. Yeah. Right. And it's, it is very close. And so that's why sure it can sound pretentious to talk about the, Mm -hmm. to use those big words when talking about the stuff, but it's, but you actually do feel those things. You know, it, it feels so important to you that you want to, Imbue it with with a sort of mythic mm-hmm. thing, so it has to do with that subject, with the subjective nature of the way you experience. Well, and then it and also
0: since this era, you do have you have graphic novels with great import at center, right? But
1: somebody like Jack Kirby, his design innovations and all of that, it's not that he didn't know what he was doing, yeah. But he was also an artist like like Stan Lee, who. The important thing was keeping this stuff close to his own sure. experience. Ironically, instead of that coming out in a sort of naturalistic way, it comes out in a sort of incredibly right subjective, what's an expressionistic sure. sort of way.
0: Well, that's why it's easier to look at like Kirby and Ditko and see the innovation. Yeah, because you can just look at it um, and you can say, "Wow." like that is that's springing from an imaginative mind that's conceiving of reality in reality bending ways that somehow
1: And then they put it on paper for and you And then to they be put it on paper see. for you to be
0: able to see. So it's very it's not tactile it's just it's obvious. Yeah. You're looking at a great artist who can draw things in an incredible way that expands the human body or expands the concept of what a frame is or where action is taking place like so for me I guess that's always the stuff that I am drawn to first. Mm-hmm. So it's a little harder to say uh, it's a little harder to see the Stanley contribution if you're holding you know a 1986 Spider-Man in your hand, let's say. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's easier to see what's cool about the drawing, what's cool totally. about the layout of the book. And so I think that contributes to it as well. And yes, if you listen to Stanley as we've had the opportunity to do and will in the coming days and weeks, like he's a great storyteller. Even when the stories involve real people who had real contributions to something he's telling a story about, he probably has to remind himself to give that credit a little bit more freely because there's probably a part of his conception of this world which is like, well, without me, you know, where would these guys be? And, totally. and he's probably right about that to some
1: degree or another. And that's that's a real human yeah. failing, both of his, sure. but of, of everybody who, yeah. who doesn't want to feel important. And, of course, that's very appropriate for the kind of stuff he was writing, yeah. what the appeal of these stories were. You feel like a hero. You feel important. The feelings that you are feeling are put on such a grand scale that they become, for a second, mythic. It gives our emotions a way out that is not rarefied. And it's, it doesn't have to be super deep. It can be instinctual. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I yeah. sort of can't, can't say enough about it.
0: You're also involved in the independent comics world of do-it-yourself. Yeah. Which I don't know if it really is do-it-yourself. You do it all yourself. Not at all. Um, but it's it gives you more control. Um, your title, Behemoth, 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 Behemoth? Behemoth. Behemoth. A little Spider-Man mixed in. Every time I listen to the podcast in my uh, earphones, I appreciate the... The twist you put on that phrase. Thank you. Uh, you say it's like, what meets what again? Uh, the dirty dozen meets the fly. It's like dirty dozen meets the fly with a little Spider-Man. <laughs> in. You throw a little twist on there. What I'm curious about is in Behemoth, you can do that yourself and you can publish it yourself essentially, or you use, or what is Monkey Brain Comics?
1: Monkey Brain Comics is a digital publishing imprint that was created by Chris Roberson, who's a more successful comic book writer than I I think he I think it was in 2012 that he mm-hmm. did it and it was specifically a place to for creator- owned books okay. to live that he would sort of, that he would curate. It's not just every open yeah. platform it's not Amazon I publish exactly and my the co- collaborator that I worked with uh, JK Woodward, uh happened to know Chris. I, I can't remember if they'd worked together or just knew each mm-hmm. other from the convention circuit. And so he went to Chris, and Chris is like, absolutely, anything you're doing, J.K., mm-hmm. I want to publish. Uh, so that's that's where we ended up, and that's something, like I said, I worked with J.K. Woodward, who's a fantastic artist who now does mostly uh, Star Trek stuff.
0: Gee, it'd be uh, great if someone would bring me a copy and I could read it. Does it exist in hard copy form? No, no it does, does not. not. That's it what I'm talking about, you digital. millennials.
1: Uh, <laughs> I could send you a PDF. Okay. Uh, that offer does not go to Want to do a limited
0: any. run of hard copy issues.
1: You know funny So that's that was Cuz some people want that, Chris. Absolutely. I don't want to look me, at I do to read
0: things on an iPad all the time. I do too. And I want ads for Foot Locker full army men in the back. Well, there was you a time that we had been reprint we, the ads from an existing I'm pointing I have, a, I have an old issue of a comic book. I think you were with me when I got this at Comic-Con last year. Um, <laughs> which I bought only for its complete 80s-ness. Oh man! Um, and for the ads, and just because it's the most ridiculous conceit for a comic book. So describe to the <laughs> well, describe to the listeners. Well, this what, is
1: issue number two of Dazzler. <laughs> the conceit of Dazzler is that she is a mutant, yes, who can turn sound into light. <laughs> wow, dazzling you! Dazzling, that's exactly. The, that's and the so still. she. I think Dazzler. she starts out she was a performer and she became very famous. Uh, by having these great light shows in her shows, which people didn't realize she was generating this, herself, it wasn't just. This in the is the a lights. comic book that and came so,
0: out of drug culture, clearly.
1: Uh, Wouldn't you say? Probably. Well, I would say there's
0: probably a lot of cocaine involved in the making of this. Book. <laughs> well,
1: I, it was the was the '70s, probably. When it, it says "Last stand, yeah. it stand in Disco Land." Disco is part of it. I like- guess
0: who shows up in this book, Chris?
1: Spider Man. Oh wow! There he is. The smell, and you can okay. They that, have that's why ni- I'll
0: never get that on an iPad. I know you're right. Okay. But look, even look at this: a hundred toy soldiers, a dollar ninety-eight. Okay, they have a uh, different paper Olympic now. Prizes. It's, I mean, this this is there's something great about this, except of you taking this and rolling it up and putting it in your back pocket. Yeah. Nowadays, like there's people that never even remove it from some protective plastic yeah, case. Absolutely. it's yeah. not a, it's, it, it's lost some of that disposability that made it great.
1: Going back to when I was saying about when uh, the first time somebody in that medium that I had heard of like died, you do realize just how young the medium was when there aren't really traditions yeah. yet to fight against or there's a, and there's no um, tradition of scholarship Mm -hmm. around it to make you self-conscious of what you're doing. There's a kind of innocence Mm -hmm. and that innocence is, can be very creative. Sure. There've been a lot of wonderful sort of modernist works of people looking back on something and responding to it. But when you're doing something completely new and there, there aren't traditions to, to to follow or mm-hmm. you know you get you can get some fantastic stuff as not that have, dazzler
0: is one of those examples because yeah, i don't I think anyone yeah, would say much. this is a fantastic title in the marvel universe well you know although she's beg- a
1: well-beloved character and uh seriously you know, yeah sure not really yeah why don't they bring dazzler back she is but what do you mean why do they bring her back she's i think she's on one of the x-men teams now
0: yeah but is she in a movie does she have a big movie
1: I don't think she's been in a big movie. If it movie.
0: doesn't have a big movie, Chris, it doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> oh, no. You know?
0: Um, Jennifer Jason Leigh is. Well, probably not her. Maybe Jennifer Lawrence could be Dazzler.
1: Well, she's already Mystique. See, this is the problem. M- Shailene Woodley from your boat Ooh. movie.
0: Too substantive. Mm. Um, Somebody who looks like this bubblegum <laughs> ad character in cartoon form. On Dazzler. Well, what did I have to I'm say? I'm still smelling
1: Both in the seventies and eighties, there was uh comics have a great tradition of jumping on bandwagons and sort of like, oh, here's something that's hot, let's make a superhero around it. Yeah. Like that's how Iron Fist was created. They were like, Oh, people sure. are like watching Kung Fu movies. Uh there were comic Ghost Rider was kind of based on, you know, evil Knievel stunt motorcycle things were Seen as exciting. Dazzler was the disco craze. But of course, remember, these are people who don't leave their studios very much. She's so on roller skates, too, Chris. Yeah. Oh, I would have told you that.
0: This is also brilliant. So on the back page of Dazzler, it says extra a mighty Marvel bonus pinup, yeah. which is just another page of the comic book.
1: Well, but, it, but it's it's like a poster. It's, it's a poster, poster yes. a story page.
0: But it brilliantly says this is talk about a bygone era. It says there's a note from Marvel. It says, "We've heard that some of you've had trouble finding a copy of Dazzler number 1, and we know how frustrating that can be. Well, we're not about to let you down. We've compiled a list of places where the Dazzling New Stars first collector's item issue can be obtained at cover price. For info, write to" and it gives you the address <laughs> of Mike Friedrich, Circulation Department, Marvel Comics. 575 Madison, which is probably the very same building that you went to.
1: Actually, I think by the time that I had gone, it was uh, 387 Park Avenue South. Oh, okay. Um, But
0: I love the concept that there was a time where you were curious about something, so you would write a letter or a card to a guy who would then send you back in the mail some weeks later a mimeographed list of places where you could go buy something. And of
1: course, in those weeks, who knows if they've lost... uh, (laughs) That's what I'm saying.
0: But there is an interesting lack of correlation between the success of the Marvel franchise movies. It's not like that drives a new generation of kids to go buy the titles because the sales don't bear that out. It's that the movies have become the vehicle for the stories. It it is, and there's probably something lost in that going forward. But maybe you know, hey, do we need another 40 years of Spider-Man stories in the titles? I don't know. Um, But it's probably a little sad to think that maybe that experience that you had, um, everything just changes, like you said. The segment of girls' graphic novels is growing and really huge and robust. The sales of single-issue books like Dazzler... Uh, are not growing robustly, but there will always be something that sells and something that
1: doesn't sell. If you think of book publishing, I think it's a famous statistic about how, how like, usually for most book publishers, mm-hmm. one or two titles... Pays for everything. Pays for sure. the other 400 or whatever. And I think that that's, that's the way it's simply going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's great that those 400 can exist. Sometimes they are incubators for, uh, for uh, an author that will then go on and their book will be the one that supports everybody on their next one or whatever. But... uh
0: yeah, but it's not as if um, Marvel uh, and who owns Marvel Disney. Yeah, um, it's not as if they use that money to make fifty million dollar movies or one hundred twenty five million dollar movies. They just keep the money, so it's not trickling. Well, it's not trickling sorry, down I'd... to smaller films i mean
1: no no no. but i guess i meant in terms of the comic publishing for example so like, like let's say like you said the the floppies aren't selling mm-hmm. uh the movies have not floppies been. is an industry term for a single <laughs> issue so. of I a comic a, book a single issue is not selling uh, i learned today that you call this the splash did Why? you know that no that's the cover is this the a, that the splash this that's is the a splash. splash page splash splash, splash page which or, is, right, the splash or a splash page. Which is, like, not a panel page. It's a page that is one panel. A
0: page that is one panel is called a splash. Page. And this would be called a cover. A
1: right. cover. I'm not <laughs> and then if you turn it over, <laughs> that is called the back, back cover. cover.
0: Okay, got it.
1: And yeah. that's well, an well, there's a lot of techni- technical stuff. That actually. That this would, would be fascinating. Opened. That takes me back. to that, that price guide. The price guide. Comic the-
0: books for sale.
1: If you had been missing an issue, you could write to this place, Mile High Comics, to, and they have a price guide to have stuff sent back.
0: So, wow. Some of these are expensive for 1981. Um, Conan, so one comma three means series one, issue three. Uh, Conan one, three. It could be that, like, that's what they have in their inventory of issue one. Oh, or that's issue three. one and three. You're right. $75 in 1981 wow. dollars. That's a lot, right? Yeah. Devil Dinosaur. I'm gonna ask you if you're familiar with some of these.
1: Yeah, sure, go for it. Devil Dinosaur. Yeah,
0: you you know I, that.
1: Yeah, of, course. of so, course. I think that's a Jack Kirby creation, and actually, I think for the past couple of years, that was reinvented as a um, as a sort of kid title, Devil Dinosaur kay. and Moon Girl. How
0: about Machine Man? Yeah, another you Kirby creation.
1: Man. Yeah, it's like a he's like a robot.
0: How I about think. Werewolf by Night?
1: I freaking love Werewolf by Night. You do? I just did a deep dive on it a few it months says, ago. It says
0: one pluge. What does that mean? Plug
1: is the name of the artist. Okay.
0: How about She Hulk?
1: Yeah. What about her? I'm just again, Yeah, very familiar a, with her. Yeah. Very familiar Actually with Stan Stanley had created her. How about
0: Moon Knight? I wish you could see Chris right now.
1: I love Moon Knight. I think Moon Knight is such a really great character, often written off and actually he's had a pretty good year or two uh currently creative wise. Yeah. What's the? I would love to write that. And actually, my favorite. What is Moon Knight? What
0: does he do? What is he? What's his thing? So
1: the thing about Moon Knight is a lot of people write it off as being sort of Marvel's Batman knockoff. But the things that are a little bit different about him is one is his personality is very different. He's much more of a kind of um, down to earth. Mm -hmm. He's a former mercenary who like died and then was brought back to life by an Egyptian, Uh, of course, god. As one uh, is, and then he becomes a vigilante, and he has three different personalities and so they've been playing mm. that recently as as he you has should see a therapist illness. for that well that's that he, they're playing up the mental illness angle that he has split personality oh, that sounds so good how
0: about uh kazar uh kazar kazar
1: uh what are, yeah you know
0: I'm these okay, yeah. so there's not one of these i've never, don't been, know. I've never
1: been a huge kazar how about burn
0: oh sorry that's a fantastic foreword i was
1: about to say that john burn <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh man thing man thing too now, why do you know all these I have to say looking at this uh, 1981 Mile High Comics list it does make me want to look up some of these obscure titles and see like what the hell is going on with
1: you know Moon Knight the or- Mo- first Moon Knight series was awesome and my favorite comic artist Bill Sienkiewicz uh, sort of cut his teeth on that and developed his whole style over it Moon Knight, because he was initially introduced in Werewolf by Night. I think was then a backup in okay, the Hulk magazine let's not, for a little we bit. We don't need to get into
0: the whole. My God, <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ! This is what yeah, passion I mean, does. I guess so this is what passion I, yeah, does to you? Right.
0: You're giving me some freaking backstory here that involves like going back. Listen, three... you
1: said you wanted to know. I'm saying ah, that I don't want Google to know search. a little bit. Like if
0: I had a copy of the comic <laughs> book, I'd read it. I don't want to hear it all now.
1: Okay. <laughs> my
0: God. All right, Chris. I think that's enough uh, on the legacy of Stanley. This is this is going to be one hell of a long um, as you know, bonus a, pod. Are you going to have to, to cut get it ha- out for five o'clock? You're going to have to cut the hell out of this thing. Uh, You've given a good take on Stanley. I find it fascinating and interesting, and I'm glad that you have the body of knowledge that you have so that you can speak to this uh, at this time.
1: Well, thank you for letting me uh, expound. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you like to borrow my copy of Dazzler? Have I, you read I, this? I
1: got it on a. I got a oh wow. It. Interesting.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can take a look. All right, well, I'll let you know how it goes when I stop by my friendly
1: neighborhood comic book shop. I can't wait. That'll be the beginning of the next episode.
0: Okay, and don't forget to subscribe, everybody. That's for you, Doug.